You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. So if you're looking for any type of battery from rangefinders to trail cameras to your truck, car batteries, anything, any type of battery that you can think of, visit your local Interstate Batteries retail location and talk with a battery specialist. For more information about the company and all of the batteries that these guys offer, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith and Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. All right, guys. Uh, welcome back to Land and Legacy Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Keith, um, here today to kind of pick back up um, a couple of podcasts we had a few weeks back where we were in Nashville, Tennessee for the National Wild Turkey Federation National Convention, and we had a couple of biologists who have done some research on um, basically a combination of things, but at the end of the day, it was um, the decline of the wild turkey, uh, and it kind of opened up some great conversations that we had with our consultants on staff Kyle Hedges and Frank Longcarriage, and so we are jumping on the phone today to pick back up with some of the research that they've found, and then going to add some additional things to consider how to manage different things um, to increase not only um, to hopefully things to consider to increase uh, wild turkey as well as bobwhite quail. So today I've got Kyle Hedges on. Kyle, thanks for joining us once again. Yep, good to be on. Haven't been on for a while, so it, it's nice to be back on. It has been a while. It has been a while. You know, we, uh, I can't even remember. I think you were on um, sometime in January, or Frank was on sometime in January. Um, you joined, they joined us on a couple of consults, so really yep. unsure. But uh, anyway, we've been all over the country consulting, and so our paths have not crossed lately, but you guys are coming back on, you know. I know you guys listen to the podcast, and so after we release those podcasts with Mike Chamberlain and, and Brett Collier, uh, it was like, oh, this is something else we found, so we need to talk about that. So um, definitely we've had a lot of great feedback on those, so we're going to kind of include some more information that you guys have found. So um, 
Yeah. Do you want to jump into this? Um, I guess before we jump into this, we should thank um, one of our sponsors that make this happen, this podcast happen, Stratton Seed Company. Um, I, w- I do want to mention to you guys, you know, these are all the things you hear us talk about in the food plot blends with the um, Heritage blend, the Legacy blend, the Game Changer 1.0s, 2.0s, all those seeds and blends are now shipping um, spring, I should say. The spring blends, the things that we're going to plant this spring, those are all shipping now. So you can go to go uh, to shoplandandlegacy.com or go Stratton Seed um, and contact them about your order. So check them out. Thanks to them to making this podcast possible. Um, Kyle, you heard those podcasts. You heard that research. Do you want to kind of summarize or pick back up kind of what you guys have found uh, and kind of lead us into to today's discussion? Yeah, I mean, so a lot of that podcast, or those two podcasts, you know, we're focusing on the turkey decline, and which we're seeing for the most part nationwide. There's a few places where turkeys are still expanding, like we saw in Missouri back in the 90s. But most places have plateaued and they're kind of on a downhill slide. And as we know, and we'll talk more later in this podcast, I'm sure, about habitat. I mean, stuff is always habitat-driven, but I wanted to kind of discuss in this podcast of of why some of these nest failures are happening and, and brood failures, too. Um, one of those podcasts down there at the national convention you had was focusing on brood habitat is pretty limited. Even if these nests hatch, you know, the broods just don't have good habitat, good bugging areas. And and we see that all across the country. Um, That's a chronic problem for quail, turkeys, any uh, ground nesting bird uh, seems to be we're short brood habitat. But more specifically um, on this nesting deal, there's a whole bunch of factors that I don't, just for people to be aware of. Some of it we can't control, some of it we can with, with other types of habitat manipulation. Um, so let me give you an example. We've had, uh, and I, I was not leading this, you know, Frank and I did the, the quail research down here in southwest Missouri, but we, at the same time in the state, there was a big uh, turkey radio telemetry project going on. And this was um, <clears throat> over the course of three or four years. And, and people, depends on what state you're in, but typically, you know, ground nesting birds, um, nest success is, is in that, you know, one out of three, 33, 35% kind of range. Um, you get down in places like Texas, you know, quail will be in the 50% range. You get, this depends on what state you're in, but on average, it's usually that 30, 35%. Um, we had a year, a few years ago on these radio collared turkeys, they had 40, um, 42 hens uh, or nests, I mean, monitored, and only four hatched that year. Yikes. I don't remember. Yeah, so a 10% nest success. Um, that's not sustainable, first of all, right? That population yeah. can't sustain. We can't keep doing that. So it doesn't, regardless of brood habitat, if you can't even hatch a nest. So um, what happened, that was a real wet year. And so a lot of our listeners know that you know, oh, wet years are never good for, for ground nesting birds. And a lot of people think that nests get flooded. And, and on occasion, 
that can happen. Um, if turkeys are roosting down in the bottoms or, or nesting down in the bottoms, I mean, in a riparian zone, that certainly can happen. Um, but what ha- what happens a lot of times, it's these were predated nests. Um, these were not necessarily all flooded nests. And, and it's not even just the predation um, happen chance. It's in a wet year, if, have you ever shot a turkey and it fell in the creek or it was real heavy dew morning and it was soaking wet? Yeah. You had that happen? Oh, yeah. And, and they stink, right? I mean, a wet turkey stinks. So imagine this hen. It's called the wet hen effect. And this happens with quail. This happens with grouse. This happens with any ground nesting bird. So imagine this hen that's sitting there on a nest, and you got to do this for almost a month of incubation. And, you know, four days a week, you're soaking wet. Well, they stink. And so any predator that's cruising along just increase their chance of finding that, finding that nest because of a stinky hen. You know, it, it goes up exponentially. So um, there's one factor that we can't control, but just for people to understand those wet years, for as far as nest success aren't necessarily flooding nests it's that wet hen effect and that happens a lot um yeah so just kind of an interesting uh, fact uh, fortunately that doesn't happen to us every year it sure um, it sure <laughs> seems like it has the last three uh, absolutely you know the yes. last the last three years um have been you know, in my family farm, I always go back to that because that's kind of where I started turkey hunting. I can remember the 90s when, my gosh, there were turkeys everywhere. And then even in the 2000s, they were everywhere. But in the last 10 years, it's been this growing silence. And uh, they'll be for a couple of reasons. You know, we went through a time where it got quiet, but the turkeys we were seeing, with the flocks we were seeing were much bigger than I remember as a kid. And it was like, well, they don't gobble as much because they're hinned up all the time. And then in the last 10 years, it's been like, nope, there's significantly less turkeys now than there were. And the last five have been very wet springs for us. And But somehow, you know, last year we had a pretty good hatch. Um, and I think that was due to... Uh, what it what it appears is we had really wet early, like that late April, early May, but then by late May we've starting to dry up, and I think there was a lot of you know later nests or re-nesting that was successful. You bet, and yeah, we kind of had a, a little chance to recover there. Um, yes, I, I saw. In fact, last year the places I hunt, I saw several jakes. So I was surprised that we had somewhat of a hatch, at least where I hunt. Same for the us. The year before. So that means there should be a few two-year-olds at my couple hunting spots this spring. So Yeah. and um, I, that, I, I, That's I, encouraging. I was on the phone last night with a guy, a friend of ours, uh, and I won't mention his name. Um, but he was telling me that based on his trail camera survey he's got going right now and just monitoring his farms, he's got a – he's got – couple of farms that he hunts are pretty close together but they're definitely not close enough to where it's the same turkeys on both farms and uh 
he said, I'm fairly certain that I have over, he threw out a number and I'm like, that's got to be high. And he's like, I swear, I'll show you pictures of these flocks. But he said, I've got over 50 different long beards wintering on my place. Wow. Yeah. Now he's kind of in an area where the big valleys that are, and they kind of all push up into his timber lots during the winter, but yeah, incredible. Um, and (laughs) it's just like, wow, they're doing, there's hot spots where they're still doing really good, um, and, and doing fine. But, you know, interesting to point out the thing that he's got going on in his place is there's a lot of timbering that goes on a lot of TSI, a lot of, uh, there's been some prescribed fires implemented, um, if you go into his timber, you won't see a lot of closed canopy timber. You'll see a lot of uh, woodland type uh, forests, a lot of cut, clear cuts, um, yep. different things like that. Where you're like, well, there's there's more forbs, therefore there's more fl- there's more um, insects because we're we've got flowering plants, therefore we have brood rearing um, habitat. Yep. So it all ma- starts making sense. And so that's the important segue in the in what I wanted to say next. So, you know, how can we combat that? We can't control if we're going to have a wet spring, early summer, right? That's, that's out of our hands. Yeah. But, but, and I think you've probably ran into plenty of turkeys. You bumped a turkey when you were, you know, sneaking along or mushroom hunting or what, whatever that was on a nest and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm going to guess the majority of times that you bump a turkey and it's on a nest it's kind of like wadded up under a down tree top, or there's some type of, you know, overhead type cover to that. Would you yes. agree with that? Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Okay. <clears throat> so you, you start thinking, you know, how can I com- combat this, this wet situation? So obviously if my only nesting cover is down along the Creek and on the rivers on my property, that isn't, I could suffer direct flooding. So exactly. we need yep. to think if I've got some uplands, Hey, I need to, I need to make suitable. That's where I need to be doing some edge feathering, some TSI. Do I have some forbs and grass for the brood rearing up there so they can have some higher ground? You know, if we're only going to hatch on a bad year, 10% of our nests, well, you dang sure better have good brood rearing habitat. So they all survive Yep. because you're already behind the eight ball. Yep. Um, so, so there's some avenues to say, Hey, let me put these birds on a little higher ground if they've got the, the choice. And then the other part of it, um, you know, if we're, we're looking at this terrible wet cycle and, and how we're going to fight through this, we, if we can have stuff that isn't linear. So if this wet hen effect is playing in, and even if it's not predators, um, of course, snakes are one that we, we can't control as much. We'll talk about it maybe here in a little bit more in detail. But if we're talking raccoons, skunks, possums, um, the egg eaters, right? Uh, coyotes are, are pretty bad on turkey nests. Um, well, is your habitat all in a linear fashion? Because if it is, you're just making those easy hunting highways, you know. We need to have having uh, saying well here's my turkey nesting habitat and you know it's it's 10 acres but it's it's only 100 yards wide and it and it goes for you know how far 50 (laughs) yards wide and it goes for a quarter mile that's that's my turkey nesting habitat and that's where i did a little edge feathering and i got some warm season grass and forbs man we need to go in and you know be 
be doing TSI on blocks of timber and burning and getting some grass response in there. And then you've got some treetops. So it's, it's a bigger matrix. It makes it harder. It, it confounds that ability for the raccoon or the coyote to just hunt an edge sniffing for a wet hen with the wind direction in his favor. Absolutely. Know? Yeah. And I, I, you see that a lot where, um, I've seen people talk about how they don't like edge feathering because they don't want to create linear um, habitat or linear space that a predator can just cruise right along on the downwind side and scent check everything that's in it. <clears throat> now, sure, that is one theory, but at the same time, we're not just, we don't want to just stop with our habitat management or our habitat improvement by edge feathering or planting right. natives along the edge and saying, well, you know, we planted this buffer strip, we edge feathered into it, that's good. It's like we want to increase the amount of acres of that, um, of those plant communities and of that structure across across the farm. To, so we have young forests, we've got um, timber stand improvement going on. So there is places within the timber that a hen could be um, and take a nest. Uh, we've got edge feathering um, field edges to where... Almost every acre that's not crop has the ability to cr give the necessities for a hen to, to have a successful nest. Absolutely. And another benefit of that edge feathering, <laughs> think about, you know, these birds are flightless till they're about 14, 18 days old, and then they can start fluttering a little bit. <clears throat> well, that edge feathering, you know, if, if it's typically along this edge of a field hopefully it's a good diverse mix that you have out there planted so it's in a pollinator edge or a buffer strip well that hopefully they're that's where they're going to be foraging right right on yeah. that seam maybe a little bit in the timber yeah well as soon as they get a couple two and a half weeks old that gives them the ability to flutter up into some of those down uh, trees you know they can flutter up just a, a few feet off the ground to escape predators too so it's not just about that nesting possibility under a treetop uh, edge feathering becomes a scape cover for turkeys um, obviously it's a scape cover for quail year-round but turkeys can use that to hop up on a few limbs to get away from that coyote that can't you know get them once they get 10 feet higher so absolutely yeah um let's talk a little bit about your comparison of quail um quail research to what you've seen and in, in read on on turkey because uh, I think if we're all honest, I would I would say a quail's a little bit more of a it needs it needs a little bit more two twenty grit than eighty grit because it, it's a little bit more uh, it, it need it, the necessities that it needs um, are a little bit more important than a quail or than a turkey. A turkey's a little bit more adapted than a quail. Is basically what I'm saying. Yeah, right. So just the physical nature of it, the turkey's longer legs, right? They can they can wade through a little thicker habitat if they had to. I mean, by that thicker grass or, or weeds, you know, and move around where a quail has to have that bare ground component to be able to move around through the vegetation. And also turkeys are going to use your TSI sites. They're going to spend a lot of time in the timber where the quail are not, unless you get down in the really open woodlands quail are not going to utilize that habitat so we're pretty much talking about you know grass and forb areas um and of course thickets for our quail so certainly more more picky um, yeah again the, depends where you're at in the country as far as nest success so so our site saw 
grazed areas where we do fire and grazing for throughout our research, a five-year research project, um, saw nesting success in the mid-40s, um, about 47 to 48% in our upper 40s, so pretty good com- considered what most people think is average. Our food plot areas that are only managed with, with fire and tractors and no cows, um, they were down in that 34, 35% range, kind of what we consider average. So our, our grazed and, and burned sites fared about 13% higher in nest success. So right off the bat, we're better off. We have a better success in, in, in hatching. Well, then the brood survival. We've just got some brood data. We had a PhD student from MU that was, was involved doing brood work during two years of our research project. Her name was uh, Emily Sinnott. And the, the number one brood survival model was burned and grazed unit. The second best was burned. This is herbaceous units, of course. The third best was grazed only with no fire. Um, once you got down into me- any mechanical um, disturbances or idle, and hadn't been burned or grazed or anything done to it in the last two years, all those models were pretty pretty poor survival. Um, so the top producing brood survival habitat was burned and grazed. So, and and that plays into. <laughs> So why is that? What's going on? Well, for the broods, it makes sense. As they're going to be weedier, forbier, they're going to have the bugs, right? But, yes. but it's also <clears throat> getting rid of some of that dense vegetation. So we're increasing bare ground. These little chicks, something else people may not know, they can't thermoregulate until they're about two weeks old. So their body, temp- they're like a snake. Whatever the temperature is outside, that's what the temperature of this poor little chick is. So... If you're wading through grass, first of all, you got to be able to move around in it to be able to eat, right? And you're just a little bitty quail. You're only the size of my thumb. So you got to be able to move around and you got to be able to have your feet on the ground. But also think of a dewy, heavy dew morning. All the vegetation is wet, right? And then maybe it's 56 degrees in the morning. That's our low temperature. Well, if, if you're brushing against a bunch of vegetation while you're walking around trying to pick bugs and you get wet and you can't thermoregulate, you're dead. They get hypothermia and they're dead. So this, this interstitial space and, and openness between plants so they can move around and not even touch plants, all they just want to do is pick a bug off a plant with their beak. They don't want to be brushing up against wet stuff, or maybe we get a rain or two days of rain, right? Any of those factors play into these broods. Um, Let me back up uh, and say, so I mentioned snakes, you know, being being cold-blooded. Well, so so one of the theories is on these these grazing units where we have um, less grass, less thatch, um, the reason we have a higher nest success for quail is because we have less snakes. Snakes are one of the top predators. I think your turkey guy said that was one of the number one predators of turkey nests. Same yep. for quail. Yep. Snakes snakes eat a lot of eggs. Well, so we got two things in play. For one, the less thatch, we're going to have less rodents in those units. And the less rodents, we're going to have less snakes. So it makes sense that we, we don't want to 
a ton of old growth down there. Now, obviously, if you're making a quail nest in, in May, you can't do it in a burn unit. So we've got to have some stuff. We can't burn everything every year, right? We've yeah. got to have some stuff, some residual cover. Um, the, the second part of the snake deal is first nests are really important. Um, and this is true for turkeys or quail, and any researcher will tell you this. Renesting is nice. But first nests are important, and usually those first nests, a lot of that happens in, in for quail in late May and, and June. <clears throat> well, if, if snakes are one of the top predators, snakes are cold-blooded. Snakes get more active as the temperature goes up, right? Yep. Their, their <clears throat> metabolism increases. The more their metabolism increases, the more they have to eat. So... If there's lots of nests going on in late May and, and June, and our temperatures or average temperatures are in the 80s, snakes are not as active as they are in August. We have quail that nest all summer and even into September. But if you look at our success rate, June nests are always way more successful than August nests. And part of that is because the snakes are twice as active. It's 100 degrees. They're moving around all the time. Their metabolism's higher. They got to eat more. Yeah. So, and and so like not only not only is the are snakes moving more um and they're eating more but there's fewer nests out there that are so basically the overall chance that uh, you're going to have more successful nests on the second go around or third go around is basically kind of a a huge combination of there's just more active snakes at the same time there's fewer nests so therefore there's not as much food in that in that side of the i, I guess um yeah with specifically a, a nest and so the chances are aren't, aren't good that you're going to have a huge uh amount of success with your re-nested uh birds well and, and listen to this is shocking was shocking to us in the quail research our re-nest attempt effort on on quail most people say you know oh if you're if you're running a brush hog and you hit a nest in june you're like oh well she'll re-nest we only had a 13 percent re-nest effort yikes yeah so most of them if they failed that first nest it was over so we can't count on re-nests oh well she'll re-nest no if you're out there doing something detrimental at the wrong time um, you can't count on the re-nest. I got Cutting five years hay. of data that proves it. Cutting hay. Yes. I How mean, many turkey nests get yeah. run over with people cutting oh, hay? Yep. And pheasant nests up in, you know, the Nebraska's Dakotas, it's devastating. And the hen, the pheasant hens are really stupid. They'll just sit there and get their head cut off. They won't even move. They'll let the swather just kill her and them. So she certainly isn't going to re-nest because she's dead. Yeah. But Yeah. Wow. Crazy. Unbelievable. That's unbelievable. Wow. It kind of makes you want to just sit back and think about that because there are some activities that we that occur that I think people don't realize how devastating they can be on on the wildlife. Um and then and then we all want to point a finger. I I guess I shouldn't say we all, but and then a lot oh, yeah. of people want to point a finger at prescribed fire. And how that burns up a a majority of nests or a, a large amount of nests every year, and I and Mike Chamberlain talked on it a little bit, but uh, we're certainly planning on having him come back on to talk about that to debunk that theory. 
Um, but yeah, the hay hay cutters definitely uh, a problem. I can remember as a as a you know as a teenager cutting hay on a family farm. You used to do that first cutting. You would always try to squeeze out two cuttings every year, and um, we would cut early. And I can remember one year where the guy said, I think it was like three nests that he ran over. And it was like, whoa, three nests? Dad, is there any way we could bump that back? And so now we cut the hay a little bit later. Um, and, of course, the quality isn't, isn't as good, but we don't run over any nests. And at the yep. same time, we've talked about it on past podcasts, but we're doing work within the timber in, in odd areas and old fields to where – um, we now have better nesting habitat outside of the hay field because in a lot of instances, those hay fields are some of the best. And it's hard to say because it's thick, th- uh, cool season grass, thatch, and not a lot of bugs in it anyway, but that's the best um, cover that that hen could find to create us uh, to, to have a successful nest. Yes, absolutely. Back to we've got to make more usable space on the whole farm. If they're only nesting in the hay field, we got a problem in the first place. And That's right. You, you guys discovered that. Uh, yeah. And, you know, so moving hay and back. That's great. Helps you a little bit for turkeys. But then for quail, they're nesting all summer. So you're yep. right back into the middle. So anyway, it, you know, if, if a guy's running an operation and you, you've got to do you got to have hey it is what it is but you just got to understand that if you're trying to maximize wildlife on the same farm there's a give and take there um so so people got to recognize there's some things i can do different you know can i cut them at a different time or can i improve habitat to adjust that nesting to somewhere else on my farm well i know a very successful cattle farmer that would tell you um when he's punched the numbers he's like it's cheaper for me to buy hay when basically you know, buy hay during the summer. Don't buy it in the winter when you actually need it. Buy it in the summer, put it in your barn or stockpile it somewhere, and hold on to it, and then just graze your what you were using as hay fields. Just start grazing those. And he's like, yeah. it, it's way more beneficial. Uh, it's it's more cost effective, um, and um, so uh, because haying is not great for soil. For soil health, and so uh, yep. basically, he's like, "It's I'll have somebody else wreck their soil health if they're going. If if I need yep. hay, I'll I'll buy it from somebody rather than do it on my own farm." And he, oddly enough, he's got a pile of quail on his place um, because he does rotational grazing. Uh, he adds uh, he adds things to his pastures every year, um, as far as you know, forbs. To, yeah. So he's got he's got all kinds of different stuff out in his pastures, unlike a lot of people, a lot of common monoculture, cool season turf grass. Um, so, yeah, uh, definitely uh, an option there. Well, so let's talk about, um, you know, raccoons and possums and skunks on the landscape now and thinking in terms of this nest timing back to first nest versus second nest really important for turkeys um also important for quail but so turkeys are doing all this they can they can get ahead of the curve right they're nesting before the quail are so they're already a a month ahead of the quail uh for sure here in missouri anyway but i'd say nationwide that's pretty standard um so raccoons uh possums they're gonna have their litters 
in in Missouri, where where I'm at, where you're at, raccoons going to have their litter sometime, typically in May, uh, early to mid May. Well, here's the good news. Same way with opossum. Here's the good news. Those little ones, they're you know they're born just like you've had litters of puppies or kittens or whatever, right? They're they're born little tiny and eyes closed and so they're not going anywhere. Mama's not going very far. She goes out, forages a little bit, has to come back, nurse them all the time. She's staying close. Possum's a little different. They'll they'll hop in the pouch and go run around, but with mom will run around. But the little ones are not on the landscape, right? Yep. So so we have we've we've gone through a full year cycle. Um, we're in late spring, early summer. So in the fur barrel, fur bear world, we're at the lowest population there is. They've suffered, um, you know, roadkill and trapping mortality and, and predation events. And so this May timeframe is the lowest population there is. Um, after about eight weeks, a um, little sooner for possums, they're riding on mama's back now. You know, they've grown a few weeks old. And they're riding on mama's back. Well, guess what? When a raccoon gets to be eight weeks old, mama takes them out and teaches them how to forage. So now all of a sudden, we're in mid-July. If you have screwed up early nesting or we've had failed nests and we're counting on re-nesting efforts, the snakes are more active. We've already discussed that. We just put, instead of one mama raccoon, we have one mom with four or five little ones. We've just increase the raccoon population by three to five fold on the landscape same with possums so all those things now are cruising around looking for a meal Mm. so those those later season nests are just not very successful we can't count on those to build populations or to rebound populations yep man oh man yeah so basically rule of thumb is create and manage your habitat. So the first go-around, the first nest, is got the highest chance of success so you don't have to deal with all this other stuff. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, then you got to ask yourself, you know, if I'm doing this for quail, um, do I have a bunch of raccoon den trees on my property? Do I have some real big nasty brush piles that I've got? raccoons and possums and skunks living in well if you do you need to get that stuff burn up if depends on what you're managing if i'm managing for deer turkey and quail well i'm going to keep my you know my timber i'm going to manage it hopefully i'm going to do tsi and some other stuff but there's some of those things to consider we can manage against predators um if if we've got some snag trees are, are good on the landscape you know bats use them there's a lot of woodpeckers there's a lot of things that use them but we yeah. don't want hundreds of snag trees on a, you know, 20 yeah. acre piece of timber because yeah. those are all raccoon dens also. So yep, we, guy needs to evaluate a lot of different stuff and, and, and combine that together to say, Hey, what do I got? What am I, what habitat do I have for things I don't want on my property? Yes. Um, so we can manage against that. So, We've talked about it in the past. I'm not sure we've ever talked about it on the podcast. But for a guy that, you know, I talked to Mike Chamberlain and, and Brett Collier, and it was, you know, two of the top predators for turkeys were snakes and avian predators, okay? 
how can a person and and when you say those two things, there's nothing legally that we can do. It's not like we can start trapping trapping snakes or shooting hawks and shooting raptors. Can't do that. How do you decrease their impact on the landscape? You just mentioned one as far as for the raccoons and nest predators is in in being removing the amount of if you have a large amount of snag trees or um, taller trees out in your open landscape, which would basically be escape cover for a or an escape structure for a raccoon, so they can get out of the way of a of a coyote. But that's also the opportunity for a raptor perch to where they can sit out there in your open grassland or your old field and pick off any quail or um, turkey poult that may be bouncing along. So that's one way. Um, Absolutely. And, you know, increasing woody structure by planting more shrubs than letting trees grow up. That's another way. Um, So you do have that escape cover. What else can we do? Yeah, specifically for quail and rabbits, your your shrubby cover is is the key there. You know, something thick enough that the hawk can't dive down through. Yep. Um, um you know, the next steps. Um, again, I would go uh, go back to linear stuff. Think don't we don't want to lay out a farm with everything linear. Now, when I say that, it doesn't mean you can't go down the edge of a timber edge and do edge feathering. Yeah. But we don't want to intentionally break things out into strips um we're creating avenues for for everything to use as as predation routes um um for other uh, the back to the snakes uh, we need more fire we need more um grazing we reduce that thatch we're going to have less snakes in that environment what kind of research um, i thought you've quoted to me before um i thought you've quoted uh decrease in snake predation in grazed versus ungrazed i don't know that i've got data on that we know there's there's research on the um the mice you know the rodent population in those situations so it's just an extrapolation assuming that um if we've got less rodents the snakes are going to shift to the higher rodent um, units you know gotcha Um, so by default they're not actively like hey i'm going to go out today and find me a quail nest for breakfast but when they run into one they gladly eat it and that's the problem so yeah um anyway um yeah further boy taking um, out the dozer decks taking out the brush piles yeah that's a big question we get a lot about you know, yeah. when we're cutting this timber, we're cutting these cedars out in the out in the old field or out in the prairie. What should we do with them? Should we pile them up? And it's like, no, leave them, leave them. If you put them and make them too dense, you're going to end up yep. creating a predator house or a snake home. You don't need that. You just leave it lay and let fire fire burn it up. Or worst case scenario, which is still better than piling it up, is it just sets there for a while. Um, it's not something that we don't want to create big dense, um, piles of logs mixed with dirt to where we just create, it's like we create bedding thickets for, for a lot of things, but let's just say we create bedding thickets for deer bedding. Well, we create in the next, very next thing we could say, we create dozer decks to house snakes and predators. Yep. 
see it happen all the time. In fact, so there's times that I will pile stuff, but that's with the intention. I know I'm going back in and burning it within months. Yes. If we're piling something, we're burning it, and I want it piled tight, and we're going to pack it in there, and we're going to burn it, and it's all gone. Yeah. And then we're going to follow up if I need that. If it was just woody cover of the wrong height for quail, and I need woody cover in that area, I'm going to follow up with planting some plums or i'm going to follow up with you know saving a few treetops that i don't push in the pile and making a down tree structure or something so i'll replace that with with suitable woody cover the woody cover that i want yeah um oh it just sparked a thought uh one of the other factors we had come into play on this this brood research plus some overwinter survival on our quail uh, stuff uh, a gal from MU, a master's student, Alicia Mosloff, she did overwinter survival. And uh, mature edge was a dangerous place to be. We saw higher mortality the closer to mature edge, both for broods and for adults overwinter survival, mm. broods in the summer. So that whole, that need for having that transition zone. This is why we edge feather stuff. This is why we have scrubby stuff across the landscape. If, if in the case of quail, if they're having to go to a hard edge, right? Where, mm -hmm. where this open, open field or an old field or an open grassland meets a hard timber, we're talking mature trees and there's no transition zone that was bad. We saw increased mortality for both broods and adults when they, the closer they were to those situations. Well, that's because those harbor more predators, whether they're raptors or whatever. If we have suitable shrubby cover, in the case of quail or rabbits, they don't even have to go to that timber edge. In some of these situations, the reason they were going there is because that was the only game in town, and that's not good. If we had suitable shrubby stuff or if there was a transition of edge feathering all along that edge, they don't have to go into that hard edge. You know, they'll stay out there in the safer area. So, hmm. um, yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. It makes total sense. And sure. and how often do we see hard edge? It's everywhere. Oh, it's a and you guys, a, we preach it all the time, right? That's why yeah. you guys are out saying, "Hey, we need edge feather." This is you should have this. It shouldn't just be a, a wall here. It ought to be this, you know, slow transition. That's why we do what we do because it's, we've got data proven how detrimental it is. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's not a good thing to have. And it's a, it's a disease. It's everywhere. You can go to almost any farm, it seems like in the country, and uh, you're going to find hard edge way more often than you will soft edge. Yep. Yeah. Here's something else that people, you know, for umpteen years, oh, those and out those hedgerows, that's what happened to the quail, right? And that that's yeah. one small factor. There's a gazillion others, and I think Frank and Matt are doing a podcast about that, maybe. But, um, well, so let's think about those and those hedgerows, and this this all goes back to predation. Dozing those hedgerows back in the day was detrimental in a lot of cases because maybe it, it split a crop field. Maybe it was a 100-acre crop field. There was two 50-acre crop fields. And this hedgerow split it, and that was the only habitat there, and there was a covey of quail there every year. Well, when that got dozed, it just became a 100-acre crop field, and they didn't replace that habitat. So certainly that was detrimental. But what we see a lot now is 
hedgerows or tree rows that are trees, you know, they're giant. These are 30, 40 DBH trees, right? Yep. 30, 40 inch giant trees. And there is no grass or anything on either side. It's just crop or hay right up to the edge of these trees. So it's this, this linear heart. Well, there's not any quail in that anymore anyway, because it's, it's no longer functioning. It got so mature. So we advocate even taking those out. Those are raptor perches, but replacing it with something, not just taking it out and expanding the field, yeah. but taking those out and replacing it, if it was, say, in a crop situation, replacing it with shrub planting and, you know, a buffer strip on either side and things like that. We take the hawks out of the game um, and we just created a bunch of, of quail and, and rabbit habitat and turkey pulp picking area or, or whatever, the, even deer bedding areas, whatever. So. Mm, yes. Yep, definitely. Uh, how often do you see, you know, you, I hear you talk about it a lot, and I'm from the cattle world, so Metal T-Post, and, yep. and and how that was <laughs> another one of the the things that led to the decline of the bobwhite quail. And that's exactly what you're talking about. Old people or, or the old timers used to cut their trees to turn them into fence posts, and then the Metal T-Post came along, so they, had to, they just stopped cutting the trees to make posts, and they bought their posts. Yep. Yeah. Yep. We got hedgerows. I'll have landowners come in and and sometimes they'll say something about a tree row. I say, uh, oh, so you got hedge trees and I'll put my arms out. You know, we got hedge trees big around as the hood of my truck with buck brush underneath them. And they look at me funny and they're like, you've been to my farm? I'm like, nope. That's like every other hedgerow that I've ever <laughs> yeah. seen. Yeah. It's called no management. Those trees when they were you know, 20, 30 years old and were still scrubby and had grass and forbs underneath them, had quail in them. And now all it is is giant trees and with a little bit of buckbrush under them. There's no quail habitat there. Yep. Oh, man. Oh, well, hopefully some people can pick up on this and, and think, okay, well, you know, and I think a lot of our listeners are multi-species management. They're they're trying to just manage holistically for all the native species. So, they do have some quail they're trying to think of things they can do to help them as well as help their deer and turkeys so you know if you've got those brush piles that have been sitting out there for for a while time to burn them up figure out how to bust them up to where they're not just predator homes Uh, if you've got those scattered trees out there in your open your open area and and uh it's time to cut them down um time to plant some shrubs Yep. Well, and you know, the biggest thing for those turkeys uh, people can do on that success is do the TSI that, you know, we're, we're talking about on these podcasts. Matt and Adam are always talking about do the, you've got to, got to make more areas for them to nest in. You Even bedding thickets. That's a big one. Yes, absolutely. They'll use all of that. So it's important to a lot of species and, and we can dictate where these turkeys can go. So increase usable space. That's what it always boils down to. There you go. Well, Kyle, thanks for coming on once again, everybody listening once, uh, just a reminder, you know, um, we're not just a deer, a deer. Uh, we're not just helping deer, deer hunters and landowners wanting to improve deer. There's all kinds of ways we can help you through our consulting services. If you're focused specifically, um, I mean, shoot, you can, we can cover a whole gamut of, of things, but Kyle and Frank have a vast amount of uh, um, 
research, vast amount of experience to help landowners, not only in upland upland birds, but all kinds of different things. So shoot us an email, get on our uh, landandlegacy.tv consulting tab, shoot us an email on, on uh, and if you're curious on having either Kyle and Frank or Matt and I out there to help you guys uh, on your farm and create more usable space or overall just the increase the productiveness of your farm. Kyle, thanks again. Yep, we'll see you. Yep.